We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect. There are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Welcome to the Friday edition of the Rotowire NBA podcast. It is June 26th. Nick Whalen joined by Alex Barutha. Alex, it's been a weird morning here in Wisconsin and for the rest of the world. Um, it's one of those days where it's projected to rain basically for like 24 hours straight, which has weirdly been happening quite a bit lately. Um, but I woke up this morning to see that Huey, the the rapper behind the, the hit Pop Lock and Drop It, passed away. This morning at age 32, um, not the way you want to start out your Friday, certainly. And this comes exactly a week after we found out that Hurricane Chris was arrested on murder charges last week. So it's it's been a very difficult time for a lot of my heroes as like an 8th through 11th grader. Um, and it, it kind of makes you wonder, like, who's next uh, in terms of these one-hit wonder rappers. But in the, in the rap world, you know, outside of the NBA, we got even more disturbing news. Uh, news that you brought to my attention about an hour here before we started recording 
the new face of Gap is now Kanye West? Yeah, I woke up, uh, saw a tweet by Kanye, um, you know, with that like Gap logo, the iconic Gap logo, except it said YZY. And he just like tweeted out like, I'm with Gap now, basically. Um, I thought it was a joke. I was like checking to make sure it was a real Kanye account, mm-hmm. um, especially since the image looked so scuffed. It's not perfectly square. Uh, but no, it's real. Um, and as TMZ points out, uh, in 2015, Kanye declared he'd like to be the Steve Jobs of the Gap. Uh, sure. So, I mean, this all this all makes sense. I think we've all gone through that phase, you know, where you kind of have that dream of running the Gap of all places. I I just have a lot of questions here. Like, is he not still under contract with Adidas? I mean, I know the Nike thing ended a while back, and he he transitioned to Adidas, but. How how many like can you be the face of Adidas and also Gap at the same time? I don't know. I mean this ar- this article does not um, doesn't specify, so I'm not sure. Uh, but it says we'll be getting his clothes as soon as the first half of 2021. So I mean, start oh, saving. That's coming now. up. Wow. I'm reading right now that Gap stock uh, was up 39% this morning, and this was as of three hours ago. So who knows where it's at now? <laughs> I, I had no idea you could even buy stock in Gap, but um, yeah, you're going to want to stock up on that right now. Let's talk a little bit about the NBA. We'll keep you posted um, if any more uh, news in the rap world or the Gap world breaks as we record. <laughs> but um, I, we, I, I have kind of a list of just a bunch of you know minor storylines I want to get to. We you know, we recorded last week and there really hasn't been a whole lot that's happened in the time since, you know, we did, I think the news in the past seven days or so has mostly revolved around, you know, one or two players on, on several teams, you know, having positive tests and, and what that means. And there's kind of a, a mini freak out every time that happens. Um, but at the same time, the NBA has said all along that, that they expected players to test positive when they return to their teams in their respective cities around this time. I think it's a much bigger issue if they, you know, they get back together, they quarantine after testing positive, all of a sudden they show up in Orlando next month and you have, you know, 20 players testing positive there. That's when it would become a major issue. So I, I think there's been some pushback now, maybe more than ever, you know, every, every time someone tests positive, whether it's Alex Land or Jabari Parker or Buddy Heald or whoever, you know, people quote tweeted and are like, oh, this is a terrible idea. This is a bad idea. I get, I get where you're coming from. I understand that there are risks involved. And it's not going to be perfect, but the NBA has planned for this. So I don't think right now the NBA is panicking because a handful of players out of you know 300 plus who are going to be in Orlando have tested positive. No, I mean you would rather. I don't want to say you would rather have them test positive now. I mean, I don't want I anybody to test positive. I guess, yeah. I mean, if the um, other option is testing positive in a month, yeah. Right, um, and you know we don't know. It seems like you might not be able to get the coronavirus t- twice, so maybe we should just expose every player to coronavirus now, uh, and then they'll all be immune when they go into the bubble. Um, but yeah, I think uh, yeah, people, you're right in that the the public, I guess, perception of of players testing positive is never great. Uh, but I mean, they have you know the season doesn't start until late July, July 30th. Uh, they did, players don't start I think going down until next week. I think the first teams start going down July 7th. So I guess some players may be delayed uh, in going down to Orlando. But I, I mean, to some extent, this is going to be inevitable. I, I, I would be 
I mean, what is there? I, I would say like a zero percent chance that in the bubble, the, it's it's completely clean and nobody tests positive. Like somebody's going to test positive at some point in the bubble. I think, um, as you know, as difficult as they're trying to make it for that to happen. So Woj tweeted out this morning that of the 302 players that have been tested thus far, only 16 have tested positive. And again, you don't want to have any positive tests. We're not saying that's a good thing, but you're talking about a little over 5%. It's like 5.3% have tested positive. And I, I think overall, that's a pretty good number for the league, especially when you see these numbers coming out of college football where like 25 players on Clemson's yeah. roster alone tested positive. And, you know, they've been going through group workouts and, and NBA players, I think, have been more separated and more quarantined. Uh, so I don't think the NBA was expecting a massive number. But I mean, in my fairly uneducated opinion, like 16 out of 302, you know, when you still have another month before everything starts up, like that seems pretty good to me. And I think the the assumption, at least, that you have to work with if you're the NBA, even though we know that it's not going to be a perfect bubble, you're, you're moving forward with the assumption that nobody's going to test positive. Even if you and I believe and that most people believe that the bubble is going to be broken, there's going to be a way for for this virus to get in. And eventually, I think it's going to to wreak some degree of havoc. You know, once once this plan is in place, it, it, it's all put into motion for for players to be kind of sealed off. So I think for them to start at this position with only five percent of players testing positive and then, you know, none of them, as far as we know, really exhibiting any symptoms, uh, being able to quarantine them, you know, for the next 10 to 14 days, whatever it takes. And, and kind of start fresh in Orlando, I, I think this is a pretty good sign. I, I wouldn't have been surprised if that number 16 was quite a bit higher. Yeah, I agree. It could have been double or triple that. And it wouldn't have been, you know, too shocking. But NBA players especially have the resources to stay at home mm-hmm. and, you know, do workouts there and, and not be too affected by it compared to, like, college students um, right. who are – who you know, I don't want to say they care less, but they also don't probably have the same. I mean, they definitely don't have the same resources as an NBA player to where it's easy for them to stay home um, and, and self-isolate. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a positive sign that only, you know, like you said, only five percent of, of players uh, have tested positive for it. What are your thoughts on, uh, you know, the guys like Avery Bradley? who have opted to sit out. I think he's kind of become more or less like the face of this uh, just because he's probably the highest profile player, which, which isn't saying a ton, but he's on the highest profile team, I suppose, being a starter for the best team in the West. I, I was, I was glad that there really wasn't any pushback. You know, I, I kind of read through a lot of the replies to the Woj tweet, breaking the news that he wasn't going to play. And I expected there to be, you know, Lakers fans or, or NBA fans in general, kind of killing that decision by Bradley, but it was pretty much, overwhelmingly positive in terms of the replies and you know i think when you especially consider that he has a i believe it's a son with you know a history of respiratory issues who either would have been at risk had he been in the bubble or wouldn't have been able to enter the bubble whatsoever um you know once, once you have family reasons involved I, I think it's a lot easier to understand and we kind of saw the same thing with trevor ariza who isn't going to be joining the blazers because uh, he's in the middle of kind of like a custody dispute, I guess, and would have basically been forfeiting time uh, to spend with his child. So, um, you know, I'm just glad, I guess, overall, that there hasn't been a huge pushback to those guys. I agree. I mean, there's um, there. uh, I mean, the NBA fans have, I I guess, in general, or at least the ones who reply on Twitter, uh, which is usually the worst of NBA fans, honestly, um, 
have proven to be like very understanding for like whatever reason uh, players decide to stick out, whether it's like you mentioned family, even if it was just personal, like, Hey, I don't want to get sick. Um, you know, if you, it was either, you know, social and racial justice reasons. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, I guess surprising that everyone that I've seen, like you mentioned, has been, uh, extremely understanding. And a lot of people have like almost encouraged it. Like, you know, every once in a while, you've seen the comments, uh, you know, I mean, there are a lot of people who still don't think the NBA should start up at all. And these are like diehard NBA fans. So, you know, I think, uh, whatever player decides to sit out is going to be met with a, a generally positive response. But at the same time, we haven't seen any legitimate high profile players, any all-star players, really decide like hey i'm not i'm not participating right um and i think the pressure that players and and fans you know influencers i guess whatever you want to call them to some degree over the last couple of weeks have you know put pressure on the nba to maybe do more than they initially planned to kind of lock this down i I don't know if you saw tim bontemps from espn tweeted yesterday that the nba is now going to use or they've at least announced or talked to players about using local, state, and federal law enforcement, as well as former special operations forces to secure the bubble in Orlando. So I, I think probably that initial pushback when a lot of players saw the, the first plan and said, wait a second, so employees at these hotels, chefs, you know, maids, things like that, aren't going to be required to quarantine. You know, it, it seemed like there were some some pretty big holes, not, you know, pun not intended here, in the bubble. And I, I don't know that the NBA will really be able to do everything to to fully secure it. But I think there's been a little bit more pressure on the league to at least reassure the players that this is going to be as safe as humanly possible. And I, I think the NBA is more than willing, clearly, to to spend the money, which is going to be a ton, uh, to make that the case. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure whatever money the NBA spends to make it happen, they're going to make back, right? I mean, it's basically an investment at this point to have yeah. uh, to make the bubble as uh as safe as possible so yeah i mean that tweet that tweet it it read kind of ominously mm-hmm. you know like the bubble is going to be surrounded by tanks or something yeah uh, i'm sure it'll be a little more tame than that but it is reassuring that like you like you mentioned like tim bontep's tweet out that um you know there's going to be a ton of protection around the bubble and the nba players and more than there would be in your everyday life if you went out to like try to go get food or even just <laughs> go for a walk what do you think it would take to shut all this down? Because I, I do think that's very much still in play. You know, I think it would take a, a lot of public pressure for the league. It would have to get to the point where, you know, even people like you and I, who really want the season to resume, start to ask some major questions. But like, what what would it take? You know, whether it's social justice type of things or you know advancements with the virus. Like, what? How far would things have to get? Do you think for the NBA to to actually pull the plug on this? Um. I mean, I don't know. I mean, as far as the, I, I don't necessarily want to like touch on how extreme the social justice thing would have to get for the NBA to shut down. Cause that's just a disturbing thought. But as far as uh, coronavirus goes, I don't know. I mean, a certain amount of, you know, I, I, there has to be some sort of threshold for players within the bubble testing positive. You would think like 25%, you know, like if, if a, if a quarter of every team, uh, has a guy test positive or a high profile, you know, uh, older coach or something like if, you know, if Greg Popovich caught it, that would 
I don't want to say that would shut down the whole bubble, but then, you know, at some point people, I mean, he's, he's in that category where it could be dangerous to his life. And so I think you would have to take either a severe amount of tests. I'm not sure what that number is or somebody getting like very seriously sick from it. Yeah. I, I hesitate to think that, and I think they were talking about this on the ESPN pod either yesterday or the day before of like, what would happen if we get to the conference finals and, Giannis test positive, like in the middle of the series, you know, would they go as far as to call off the series for a week and a half and, and like, let the Bucks get back up to full strength? Or would it just be like, sorry, this is, this is how it's going to work. We just got to move on without you type of situation. I tend to think it would be the latter. I think it's pretty inconceivable, especially if it's just one guy, you know, whether it's Giannis or whether it's, you know, um, I don't know, Frank Mason, uh, on the Bucks, like I, I don't think that they would end up giving preferential treatment to certain players. But I, I'm with you. I think I think in order for this to to reach that point where they would consider it, it would have to be almost kind of a mini outbreak within the bubble, which is conceivable because you know for as much like medical technology and everything that these players are wearing, there's going to be a lot of player to player interaction, and the NBA can only mitigate that to some degree. So if if some player you know, randomly is it contracts it from an employee who had left the bubble. Um, you know, there's a chance that that could spread rapidly. You know, we're seeing that all over the country, how quickly it can spread that even though the NBA is going to these extreme lengths to, uh, to kind of distance the players, even within the bubble, like it could spread with a, within an individual team very quickly. Yeah. And I, I'm with you where I don't think they would delay any of the series. Cause then you get into a situation where it's like, okay, if Giannis, that's positive and the NBA decides, okay, we're going to delay this for a week and a half. And then he comes back and then a game later, you know, uh, who uh, Pascal Siakam tests positive in the same series. And then it's like, okay, now do we delay it a week and a half? And pretty soon we're playing right. the 2020 NBA finals uh, in 2030. So exactly. like, um, I think they just have to, I think they just have to push through and kind of accept that it's unfair for everybody. And that makes it fair, unfortunately. Um, and that you just kind of have to treat it like a freak injury or, or something mm-hmm. like that. I don't think the NBA wants to be in the business of determining which players are important no. enough, you know, to, to cancel the game. You know, I, I think, you know, if, if like Brooke Lopez were to go down, I think maybe to the average fan, it would be like, oh, that's not that big of a deal. But I think the Bucks would argue like we're a significantly different team without Brooke Lopez. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I don't I don't think that the NBA will go to those links and hopefully that, you know, hopefully we don't even have to find out and no you know, major star players will will be impacted by this in the bubble. Um, all right, that's enough coronavirus talk. I don't really have much else on that. Like we said, we're, we're still kind of in a holding pattern, um, you know, until, until these workouts and eventually uh, scrimmages. There's I don't know if we've talked about this on the pod before, but the NBA kind of quietly announced last week that before the eight-game regular season, there are going to be three scrimmages against other teams that are in your same area of Disney World or, I guess, same hotel um, so, you know, it could be like Bucks, Raptors, Bucks, Lakers, whoever. Um, so that'll kind of act as a mini preseason before that eight game regular season. Um, but anyway, switching gears, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Vince Carter, who officially retired earlier this week. Not a huge surprise. I mean, it, it was it was pretty well known that this was going to be his last season. Um, and, and as soon as you know the official plan was announced that that Atlanta obviously wouldn't be in Orlando, that that kind of sealed it for Vince. But you know, we talked about him a few weeks ago when we did that that breakdown of the ESPN Top 74. He, of course, made that list. I, I wouldn't argue that he should be included. I think he is somebody, uh, like a lot of players from that era, the more we look back, who I think 
his it, like the aura around him, his you know, the way he was perceived, you know, the the way that he played the game was extremely appealing from a viewership perspective. Um, I, I do wonder though, you know, when we look back, you know, whether it's now. I mean, it's we're basically like 13 years removed from Vince Carter's like prime years when he was in New Jersey. I mean, his last All Star appearance came in 2007, and you know, I, I don't think at that point anybody was like, yeah, he'll still be in the league in 2020. But what what do you think his enduring legacy will be? Uh, that's a good question. I think, I mean, for me, he was my favorite player growing up. So, like, a, as much as, you know, I pushed back and or we both pushed back on where he was in that player ranking, um, mm-hmm. I still enjoyed watching him a lot. I mean, he's one of the most entertaining players of all time um, as far as, you know, if you if you turned on a game where he was playing, you might witness the dunk of the year. And he was doing stuff where it's, you know, I mean, if you look up any of his highlight reels, you know, a top 100 Vince Carter dunk mix, it's like number 100 is a windmill. Right. Like, it, it's like insane. So I think, I think, I mean, his legacy is is going to be, it's going to go down as a very good player, obviously, someone who was able to make eight all-star teams and a, a couple all-NBA teams. But I think ultimately it comes down to his legacy as an entertainer um, in the NBA as far as just his his dunks, the dunk contest, everything like that. He started six of those eight All-Star games as well. And I, I believe he led the East in voting at least like five or six times. I mean, he was like you said, I mean, I, I think a lot of people around our age, you know, if you're if you're a, <clears throat> a guy or girl who's like 24 to 32, like. Nobody, I don't know one person who disliked Vince Carter, especially when he was a Raptor and a net. I mean, he was, even if he wasn't your favorite player, he was in that zone where like, you're never going to, nobody was going to say he was overrated. Nobody was going to say they didn't like watching him. Like he was universally loved kind of almost in like the same way that like Michael Vick, I guess, to some degree where like, I don't think there were a lot of people who were legitimately claiming like Michael Vick is the best quarterback in the NFL. Nobody was saying Vince Carter is the best player in the NBA, but his approval rating among fans was like a hundred percent. Yeah. And I think I think to me that his like modern equivalent, you know, at least more recently was like Blake Griffin, where sure. no one no one ever like I mean, I guess some people thought Griffin might have been one of the best power forwards in the NBA. But it was like you just watched him for the entertainment and he was also like 20 points a game guaranteed. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think for the most part, people liked him. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, for me, Vince was just like. Like I said, he was my favorite player growing up. Like this, everything you would see him do was absolutely insane. Even though you know you could concede the point that he probably wasn't a winning player, at least as your number one guy. I think the the biggest pitfall for him was he was so athletic that people expected more. And he still, I mean, his his peak like peak ten years essentially were twenty five points, five rebounds, four assists, one and a half steals, almost one block per game. 38% from three, 45% from the field, 80% at the line. I mean, he was a fantastic player. Like, never never a guy who was making all-star teams that he shouldn't have made. I mean, there was no debate there. I think people saw that athleticism, though, and, and thought, you know, Kobe's averaging 30 a game. Iverson can put up 32 a game. Like, why isn't Vince Carter doing this? And, you know, I mean, you could, you could argue that maybe he didn't quite reach his potential based on that, like, otherworldly athleticism. But I, I, don't, I don't view him as somebody who had a disappointing career relative to where maybe somebody thought he could be when he came into the league in 98. I, I think his career 
you know, he, he had like an A minus career, which yeah, most guys that come into the NBA fall significantly short of that. Right. And I mean, that jump from perennial all star to legitimate, like Hall of Famer, top three to five guy in the league is mm-hmm. and it's that, you know, people perceive that as small because they're like, oh, it's just another five points per game or it's another two rebounds, another two assists. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's I mean, that's a huge gap to make, even though people perceive it, I think, as as relatively small, maybe easy to make. When you're that good already, the amount of stuff that you have to slightly tweak, the positions that, I mean, some of that's just going to be team context. Yeah. Um, there's just a lot of different factors going on. And I don't, I'm with you. I don't, I don't knock Vince for not being able to take that, you know, that leap of, that is probably like an extra, like 5% of, you know, mm-hmm. skill or whatever it is. Right. I, I think he came to the Nets like one or two years late. You know, those Raptors teams around him were pretty awful. Um, and then by the time he got to New Jersey, you know, their run where they, they went to back to back finals, they were, you know, kind of the best team in the East, I guess, through the, the first few years of the 2000s. And by the time he gets there, Jason Kidd is 31. You know, some of that core uh, from those great teams in 02 and 03 has moved on. And you know, shortly after, um, you know, Vince just kind of starts to fade a little bit. I mean, his his age 29 and age 30 seasons in New Jersey are fantastic. 24, 25 points a game, you know, kind of right on par with all of his career averages. But uh, after that, things things started to fall off pretty, pretty quickly. You know, once he got into his low 30s. And I, I just think it's it's crazy to think of where he is now, because I don't think he was ever viewed as the type of player who would stick around this long. You know, I, I think maybe the one knock on him early in his career was he kind of ruined his reputation with the way that he forced his way out of Toronto. And, you know, we saw it. I mean, it took like the city of Toronto over a decade to really kind of forgive him. And uh, that didn't really come until a couple of years ago. And I think overall that that reputation as a guy who, you know, forced his way off of a team, was never really a true winner in Toronto, I, I think followed him for probably longer than it should have. But I, I just don't think based on how he was viewed in, say, 2007, I think it would have seemed insane if you told someone back then that Vince Carter would be the guy. Of all these players in the league at that time, like, he would be the one who played until he's 43. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, usually it's not, um, I mean, usually it's not, like, the hyper-athletic guys that do that. Like, it, you could see someone like Chris Paul playing until he's, like, 43. Right. You know, a guy like, we, we saw, like, Tim Duncan play for a long time. Um, you could see uh, LeBron might be an exception. But, like, it's usually not these, yeah, like, high-flying athletic guys. You, you figure their career is basically, you know, over mm-hmm. um, by, like, 35 just because of the wear and tear. And you figure their game is so much uh, predicated on athleticism. You know, like, imagine if Russell Westbrook was playing when he was 43. That's another thing. You'd, you'd be completely right. shocked. Well, I think the other thing with Vince, too, is like I'm, I'm almost talking more personality than oh, I think sure. you're, totally, you're totally right that a lot of these athletic guys, you know, either like once they lose their athleticism, you know, a lot of them probably just can't stand to be a different player. You know, it's really tough to go from being the most athletic guy in the league to trying to reinvent yourself, which which Vince Carter has done amazingly. Um, but I think personality wise, like he, he, the guys who play into their 40s are usually the guys who just can't quit the game. You know, they're, they just love basketball so much. They love competing. Not that Vince Carter didn't love competing, but I don't, I don't think he was viewed as like a Kobe type of competitor at any point in his career. So I, I think that was kind of the bigger surprise. Yes. Yeah. And that ties in with like the Toronto thing. You know, I think he got that perception yeah. of he's just selfish or doing it for the money or whatever. 
This isn't like a Dirk situation where he's been on the same team for his entire career or something like that. So did you see that stat? Uh, I think Tommy Beer at Forbes had it yesterday. This is mind blowing. And I don't even want to like try to do the math on how they got to this. But according to Tommy Beer, Vince Carter has played with or against 38% of all players who've ever played in the NBA. (laughs) That is insane. Uh, yeah, I mean, if they're counting anybody who's been on a bench while he's been in the game or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, if you're talking about anybody involved in a game from 1998 onward, I feel like that makes sense. I mean, the league expanded. Well, and you're also talking about, you know, guys, you know, this could be somebody who came into the league in 1984 and played against Vince in 1998. Right. So that does span. I mean, you kind of have to go back, you know, it's kind of like a plus minus 15 years. So, yeah, in the in the tweet, Tommy Beer says Vince Carter's been teammates with or matched up against 1,672 of the 4,509 players who've played in the league. I, I mean, guess, that's yeah. I, mean, I guess that makes it sense. checks out, I think. Right. I don't know. I mean, I think this is via he, he sourced it to Reddit. I don't know how they came up with that. That would be that would be like days worth of research. It could be. All right, I have some trivia, too, via the same guy. Uh, he says, Vince Carter re- retires as one of five players in NBA history to score more than 25,000 points, grab more than 5,000 rebounds, hand out more than 4,000 assists, and make more than 500 three-pointers. So 25,000 points, 5,000 rebounds, 4,000 assists, 500 threes. Can you name the other four? Uh, is Kobe one? Kobe is one. Well, is it, I mean, if it counts... I mean, is LeBron on there? Does that not count? LeBron's on there. Okay. Uh, Oscar Robertson? No, no he's not threes. No threes. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. No threes. Um, I feel like I'm I'm probably missing someone obvious. Um, yes, I'll say that. Uh, I don't know. Just give them to me. My, my brain's not working. Um, Michael Jordan. Uh, oh, well, yeah. The Wizards guy. And then yeah, Wizards. Paul Pierce. Also a wizard. Oh, Pierce. Oh, man. You would think more guys would be on that list. You know, 500 threes isn't that many. Although 25,000 points, it's a ton. Yeah. Like, how, is, how is Dirk not on this list? What is What did he miss out on? Assists? Probably assists. I, I guess I would have never guessed Paul Pierce for his assists. But during Pierce's prime, he was, he was a good passer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you just have, like, a run of... If you can just basically average, like five assists for 10 years. So Dirk, what did he miss on? Dirk has 3,651 career assists. Okay. So he was close. Interesting. Well, the more you know. So what do you think? Let's relitigate this real quick before I move on. Vince Carter was 55 in that ESPN top 74. He's one spot behind Paul Pierce, two spots behind Gary Payton, three spots behind Tracy McGrady. And he's two spots ahead of Clyde Drexler, three spots ahead of Manu Ginobili, and one spot ahead of Ray Allen. Um, man, I feel like Ray Allen had a better career, right? Yes. I, I think Clyde and Ray Allen had better careers. Clyde, that, yeah. I think what breaks a tie is both those guys have titles. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I... I don't know, man. Clyde Drexler was so good. I mean, it's... Clyde seems low. I, I think I would put Drexler ahead of everybody in that group, right? 
I mean, uh, you could maybe debate him versus Pierce. I mean, just because Pierce has the team success as well. I think and I'm the biggest Trace McGrady fan of all time. He's, he shouldn't be 52. That's too high. Yeah, McGrady's prime was unbelievable. But Yeah, yeah he might have had the best like three-year peak of all these guys, but you know, a short career overall, you know, kind of a delayed start because he, he was so young and, and coming off the bench and really not doing much in Toronto. Like his, his prime was awesome, but it was very short and he never really had any team success. Uh, Drexler had a 11 year stretch where he averaged 22 points on 17 shots, six and a half rebounds, six assists, and a combined 2.8 steals and blocks. It's 11 year stretch. So like, right. I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's better than any stretch by Vince Carter, I think. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think maybe he gets a bump on that list because of influence. And we talked about that a little on our, our podcast sure. about, you know, guys like maybe Allen Iverson and Vince, especially who could get a bump because of what they meant to the game or how excited you were to watch them to some extent. Yeah. So if, if that's factoring in, sure. But Clyde Drexler was also extremely entertaining, right. like <laughs> he's in a, like one of the highest jumpers in NBA history. So, yeah. I guess I just don't like one of the things that ESPN notes in their write up is like, you know, Carter will be remembered for two things, his dunking and his longevity. Like, yeah, I mean, he deserves credit for still being a rotation player in into his 40s. But I I mean, he hasn't you know, he really hasn't been like a true good player in like seven years. I guess I I just don't really like give him a ton of credit for, you know, appearing in 58 games for the Kings two years ago or like spending his last two years with like one of the worst teams in the league, you know, like it's not like it's a LeBron situation where he's sitting here at age 36, like still putting up 25, eight and eight, you know, like he, he was basically done as a, as a really productive player, you know, in like 2013. Yeah. At that point he was 37 and, you know, it was kind of done starting, you know, he, he shifted into a bench role with the Mavs in 2012, 13 and was still a fine player, but I just, I guess to me, like, I don't give a lot of credit for a guy who's basically averaging like single digit points off the bench for six more years at the end of his career. Like that, to me, that doesn't really mean that much. I don't think it means much. I also think it's like, it's kind of interesting because we don't really see players do it that much. Like just to have someone who was once one of the better players in the league, just like really see it out until the very, very end. That almost never happens. Um, You know, I, I'm sure it's a little bit different. Like if LeBron were to do it, uh, but it's, it, I don't know. It's just kind of interesting to me. And I think he gets credit for being one of the few guys to actually do that. Sure. Even if it was just seeing 15 minutes a game on the worst team in the league, basically. Yeah. I'm more than willing to applaud him for the transition from, you know, being an all-star every year from 2000 to 2007 and being the type of guy who was able to swallow his pride and and be by all accounts, a great veteran mentor for basically the last decade. Like that's awesome. But when you're talking about where it, where it impacts your legacy, when you're ranking the best players, like I, I just don't think it should really be a part of the discussion. And I, I think like Vince versus Ray Allen is really interesting, even without the longevity argument. And we, you know, we, we thought Ray Allen was a longevity guy. Like he played till 38 and that seemed long and he won a title in his second last year, you know, as still a very important part uh, of that Miami team, obviously hitting the shot that 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 one game six for them. But I think even if you take longevity out of it, like their primes are a pretty interesting comparison. Like Vince has a slight edge in terms of points per game, but Ray Allen was a 40 plus percent three point shooter on higher volume, a much better free throw shooter, um, a guy who you don't really think of as a passer, but 
during his like eight year peak was over four assists a game, almost five rebounds a game, almost a steal and a half. Like I thought those guys were pretty comparable as is. And I think the fact that Ray Allen was a key contributor on two title teams to me should put him over the top. Yeah. I mean, there's, their statistics are pretty close. Allen's a little uh, less usage, but he's way yeah. more efficient. It's not even close. Like if you just talk about primes, right? So, you know, and like you mentioned, title teams, Ray Allen was still longevity. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you there. All right, so let's get into, real quickly, we'll just touch on a, an article that we put up yesterday on the site. Uh, we, we've talked pretty extensively about the uh, playoff odds, the, the futures that are up on the FanDuel Sportsbook. Um, we, so we dove into those, and we each just kind of went through four of our, our favorite bets on the board heading into Orlando. So I, I focus more on you know, finals matchups, um, the conference winners who could get the eight seed. You did a couple uh, looking at some of the awards odds that are also available on FanDuel. So I'll, I'll let you lead it off. You could talk about, um, you know, two or three of the bets that you put down in that article. Yeah. I mean, that, one of the, uh, first ones that I liked was, uh, a finals matchup between the 76ers and Clippers. And that's 28 to one. Um, which I think the odds are way too, uh, way too long on that. I mean, they're, you know, like I, I think there are, are surrounding matchups, as far as odds go, that are not even close to being as likely as this. Like Bucks versus Jazz is twenty-one to one. I don't even think that's even remotely as close. I don't think the Jazz are going to the NBA Finals. I think that's right. ridiculous. Um, Heat versus Lakers is twenty-five to one. Uh, I don't perceive the Heat as better than the seventy-sixers. Bucks versus Mavericks even is twenty-six to one. Heat versus Clippers is twenty-eight to one. Like, I just think, especially given the odds around it, this one is feels ex- extremely out of place. Mm-hmm. And you don't even really have to make the argument for the Clippers making the finals. Everyone knows. I just think the 76ers are like kind of being disrespected. I've talked about this a lot, but they had, I mean, Joel Embiid himself missed like 25 games. Ben Simmons missed 10 games. Even Josh Richardson missed about 10 games. Like the fact that they're the sixth seed, you know, they're 39 and 26 with their best couple, two players basically missing a combined 35 games is actually, in my opinion, not disappointing at all. It's kind of like expected. Yeah, I, I think what's most disappointing about their season is just the lack of consistency. Like they were, they were a worse road team than the Knicks this year. Yeah, and you yeah. you can talk about the injuries and and those are legitimate, but I, I think a lot of the frustration just comes with them, like you know, having that that awesome game, like probably the best game they played all year on Christmas Day against the Bucks. They were up twenty nine points in that game early in the fourth quarter and end up winning huge. Like seeing that and then seeing them lose, you know, on the road in Charlotte two nights later, I think is what was really disheartening about this team. But I, I'm with you. I mean, I, th- I think when you when you look at these numbers, you know, talking about the exact finals matchup odds, it's it's very glaring how much respect the Bucks are getting. You know, just like you said, I mean, the fact that Bucks Mavericks, which Dallas is currently the seven seed in the West, you know, that's that's considered more likely than Sixers Clippers, which to me, I, I 100% agree with your logic there. I think you know, there's not a lot of there's not a ton of value in taking Milwaukee um, just because they are so respected you know, by the odds makers. But if you you know if you want to try to kind of cash in and and make some big money and bet against the Bucks, I I don't I don't think that there's a clear number two. And this is something that I wrote in in one of my write ups in that article is it, part of the the tough thing with the East is 
you know, in the West, like if you want to pick against the Lakers, you're probably picking the Clippers. If you want to pick against the Clippers, you're probably picking the Lakers. If you want to pick against the Bucks in the East, like you could make a case for the Celtics. You can make a case for the Raptors. You could probably make a case for the Heat. You could certainly make a case for Philly. Um, so I think getting one of those teams that I consider, like if you're if you're going to say the Bucks aren't in the finals, I'm more than happy to believe that it's the Sixers that beat them. So getting them at 28 to one versus the team in the Clippers that I think is coming out of the West, I, I think that's a great number. And I, I actually did a write up on the Sixers winning the East, not not uh, the finals matchup, but you can get them just to come out of the East at nine to one. Um, and I, I think asking them to to win the finals is a little much. I would not bet on the Sixers to win the finals because then you're assuming they get by Milwaukee and then have to beat one of the LA teams. To me, that's too much to ask, but I, I don't think it's inconceivable that that Milwaukee could fall to this team. I agree. And like the, you know, the road numbers are concerning, obviously. And you talk about like how, you know, they look amazing one night and bad the next, but that's also how we talk about the Houston Rockets. Yeah. And you know, people are like, oh, the, well, the Rockets are a you know long shot option. So um, I, I just think that we shouldn't talk about those two teams, I guess, so differently. No, I agree. I, I think there is kind of this air of like variance with the Rockets because they shoot so many threes that you, you kind of talk yourself into this belief that they could beat anybody if they if they really start falling on a given night. Uh, we've seen it go both ways for them in the past. And I guess Philly maybe hasn't hasn't earned that yet, but it's surprising because the Rockets are getting a ton of respect. This is something we hit on last week too. Like Bucks Rockets is 11 to one. You know, I, I the, the odds makers very clearly see Houston as the third best team in the West. There's a very big gap between the LA teams down to Houston. And then there's a huge gap from Houston down to teams like Denver and Utah and Dallas and, and, you know, whoever else is in that middle category. Right. Yeah. And just because they're, people view them as like inherently variant with like all the threes that they shoot. Right. But just because the 76ers variance comes in the form of like, you know, I guess, uh, defense like defense. Yeah. Right. Like paint defense, like Ben Simmons yeah. and Joel Embiid have the ability to be the best, you know, like one, two defensive combo in the entire NBA. Right. So, you know, I, th- yeah, um, I think you, 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 well, you can see Russell Westbrook and James Harden go off in the same game. You know, like you could, it's conceivable that those guys could give you 85 points if, if, you know, on their best night. Whereas like Simmons and Embiid could go off for great defense. Yeah. And people don't perceive that. This is harder way. to quantify. Yeah. Uh, how about you? What do you, what do you have? So I mentioned that Sixers bet. They're, they're the team to me that if you want to pick against Milwaukee, I would I would roll the dice with Philly. At the end of the day, though, I wouldn't pick against Milwaukee. I think they're a massive favorite for a reason. But I do think uh, losing home court for them um, is big. And it's also big for Philly, which was the best home team in the league uh, during the regular season, which which you know kind of makes their road record stand out even more. One that I kind of like, and this is the last one that I wrote up, I like either Portland or Sacramento to be the eight seed in the West. Um, you can get Portland at plus 460, uh, Sacramento at plus 850. I wouldn't pick the Kings. Uh, it's, uh, I wrote in the article, like it's, it's really hard to like, come up with a great reason why Sacramento should, you know, should beat Portland, New Orleans, Memphis, whoever it would be. Uh, in order to win this bet, you need them to get the eight seed for the playoffs, not just like finish in eighth or finish in ninth. Like they have to actually be the team that goes to the playoffs. So you're asking a lot, but Sacramento has the same record as New Orleans and Portland right now. And even though they're not viewed in the same light as those teams talent wise, 
Uh, the records, you know, indicate that they should be. And, you know, I, I know Portland had some major injuries. You know, New Orleans obviously only had Zion for 19 games. But I've, I've harped on this over and over, I feel like. But New Orleans went 10-9 and nine with Zion. I, I don't think that they're just – we're not just going to hand this to New Orleans and they're just going to catch up to Memphis. Like, I, I it just – people are talking about New Orleans like they went undefeated as soon as Zion came back. And that's just not the case. Like, I I think it's a, it's a toss-up to me between New Orleans and Portland – uh, and the Pelicans are plus 380, so I don't hate that bet either. But as, as kind of a longer shot, I you know Sacramento is three and a half back right now. If they can just kind of tread water, and you know maybe Portland takes a step back, and Nurkic just doesn't look like we hope he does, and Zach Collins struggles coming back, or you know it's just not it's not crazy to me that Sacramento could end up forcing a playoff with whether it's Memphis or New Orleans or whoever, and just get lucky and 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 get in as the eight based on where they are right now. You know th- their numbers are closer to like where sac or where uh, san antonio and phoenix are and those teams are so far you know out of the race in terms of games back that it's just going to be almost impossible for them to close the gap but i mean record wise sacramento is right there so i even though the kings like nothing they've done in the last 15 years should instill any amount of trust whatsoever um i, I think they're worth a dart you know based on where they're positioned right now yeah i think like eight to one is like a little shorter than you'd want it to be. Like if it was yeah. ten to one or eleven to one, I think I'd feel better about it. But like I, I agree with your argument. Like they, I like the Kings as a team. Um, you know, I'm not like a, <laughs> I'm not like a Harrison Barnes guy, but he's a valuable NBA rotation player. And then you talk about Darren Fox, who's obviously great. Buddy Heald, Bielitsa is someone I like. Uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich is a three position guy. Rashawn Holmes is extremely underrated. Like they have. They have talent, and Marvin Bagley should come back, right. whether he's healthy or not, matters to some extent. Um, but I agree, Doug. If, I mean, especially if you're like a Kings fan, I can understand, you know, feeling like that's a good bet to make. I, I think Portland makes a lot of sense at you know a little under five to one. Like they're going to have the best center rotation in the NBA mm-hmm. when they come back with uh, Nurkic and Whiteside. So that's 48 minutes of that, which is again, it's no other team can even compare with that. And then you can run, you can run just tons of pick and rolls with that, like literally all game. You can do Nurkic white side pick and roll guys. The Nurkic white, yeah. white white side as a ball handler. Obviously, obviously, white side is a ball handler. Um, you know, losing a reason matters, but you get Zach Collins back, who's interesting as like a three and D front court guy. Um, I mean, they're gonna be they're gonna be really good. I mean, I I don't you know. Their their wing rotation isn't going to be awesome, but um, uh, they they definitely have just as good of a chance, I think, as you know, um, as the Pelicans, who people view as yeah. a a way better chance. And right. to some extent, the schedule will matter here. Yes, but time. I think I I still think at you know plus four sixty, it's a it's a valuable bet. I think this whole thing is enough of a crapshoot that it's. I just don't think it's fair to be like, oh, the Pelicans and the Blazers are so much better. Like we have no idea right. what any of these guys have been up to, what they're going to look like. Like it's, I don't know. I, I think, I, based, I think all those teams should have closer odds based on the records and based on we're only playing eight games. You know, if if we were going to play two more months of the regular season, I, I think I think the better team would eventually win out, and and Sacramento would probably end up falling behind Portland and New Orleans, but. Over an eight-game span, man, who knows? Like, I think it's just gonna it's gonna depend on which guys are ready. You know, which which guys maybe just randomly get hot during that span. Uh, so I think there's an argument there. We'll make this the last one. Pitch me on your Denver to win the finals bet. <laughs> okay, so I always I've always liked Denver, like since the beginning of the year. I just think like 
For, well, first of all, that you have Nikola Jokic, obviously fringe MVP guy. Um, but for me, Denver's chances have always been about how how deep their roster is, and I think that actually comes in. Uh, that's more of a strength now, unfortunately, than ever before. Where you're talking about a situation where we're in a bubble because of a, a virus where any player could just like randomly catch a virus and be out two weeks or a week and a half or whatever it is. Having an extremely deep bench, I think, is going to matter a lot. Um, and with the Nuggets, I just think like, you know, if Jamal Murray goes out, they still have, have like Monte Morris and uh, like Will Barton to do point guard duties. If like Paul Millsap goes out, they have Jeremy Grant. Even if Jokic himself goes out, Mason Plumley kind of fits like the you know, he fits the the role um, as far as, like, a passing big. They have Michael Porter Jr. just, like, in their back pocket who could score 20 points on any given night. Um, like, I, I just think they, they're they in an interesting position now as an extremely deep team to take advantage of this bubble as, you know, kind of unfortunate as that is. I think that's fair. I I don't love Denver. I know I know they won a series last year. It, they shouldn't have got out around one against that bad Spurs team, honestly. And then you know they end up losing Game Seven at home to Portland. So I, I don't love them. I, I feel like the guys around Jokic haven't made the progress that you'd like to see from them, and and it's tough to imagine that they'll make that leap now. With that said, you could kind of make the same case, and and you partially just did for them as the same case that I just made for Sacramento, where it's just like, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, in a, in a typical NBA playoffs, I think we'd both feel really good about the LA teams meeting in the West finals, just because of, of where they were trending, how deep they are, the town at the top, et cetera. But when you're throwing in all the unknowns of this situation, uh, I like the point you made about them being deep, you know, Michael Porter, I wouldn't say you could necessarily count on that just because he's so young and so inexperienced, but not many other teams have a guy just sitting there, you know, who could be a 25 point per game scorer at some point who is just playing like 11 minutes off your bench. Right. And they've been, I mean, you know, the Nuggets, their defense needs work for sure. Um, but, you know, I mean, with everybody coming back rusty, maybe it won't matter as much. Um, but I mean, they, there's, you know, plenty of different stats you can point to, like against top 10 net rating teams, they have the six best point differential. Their simple rating is ninth, which isn't amazing, but it's good. You know, with Jokic and Murray on the court, they're, you know, plus eight net rating. Like, there's a lot of numbers you can point to and say they're, they're, I mean, they're, I mean, they're the, the third seed in the West. You know, it's not like they've been slacking or anything. It's not like we should be shocked if, if they're, you know, competitive to say the least. And I think if they, if they actually manage to get to the finals, um, I think they're, you know, I think they'd be favored against any other team except Milwaukee. I don't know about that. I I saw you saw that in your write up. I kind of disagree. I don't. I think if it's like Denver, Toronto, I think I think Toronto would be favored. Although, eh, I don't know. I don't know. In this situation, obviously Denver would have beaten one or both LA teams, so that maybe changes how they're viewed. But right. then Toronto likely would have beat Milwaukee. You know, so that maybe bumps them up a little bit. I don't know. It'd be tough. I mean, I Denver to me, Denver just isn't getting any respect. You know, like we talked, like Houston is very clearly yeah. the third best team in the eyes of the odds makers. Why is it not Denver? I don't know. Is the uh, would a 76ers Nuggets finals be like the ultimate? These teams have gotten no respect throughout the whole year. Finals turns out they're actually good. I, that that one might be an asterisk. Finals. If, it, if we get neither Milwaukee nor any of the either of the LA teams, it might be an asterisk. Finals, but 
it would also be two of the best centers in the NBA, arguably, going up against one another. And I think I I'd rather know. watch like Suns Magic. <laughs> Come on, dude. that would be a fun series. I refuse to believe that Nuggets 76ers would be. Uh, I don't know. You can't, even, rather you can't watch even that on that as a series. <laughs> well, that's. I'll I will try. All right, man. Um, so we talked with Tom Kesnick, uh, NFBKC, NFFC, all, all the you know the major contests that you know earlier this week, uh, just for about 15 minutes to kind of catch up with them, see where where they're at. Um, you know, obviously their company has been uh, affected by the shutdown just as much as as any sports media outlet. Uh, but we had Tom on on Wednesday, and we we just kind of talked through the. NBA playoff contest that is live on their site. Um, you know, won't be won't be starting, of course, until the NBA playoffs begin, uh, probably around that second week in August. But um, had a fun chat with him, so we'll just uh, we'll attach that at the end here, and uh, this will be the sign off for for you and I, Alex. We are joined now by Tom Kesnick, manager of High Stakes Games for Sports Hub Games. You probably know him better as the guy who helps run your NFBC, NFBKC, NFFC contests. Uh, Tom, appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So the big news uh, as we record this on on Wednesday, June 24th, obviously baseball kind of has somewhat of a plan to be back. Basketball has had a plan in place for a while. Football is still somewhat up in the air for the fall, but that's a little bit of a ways off. What have these last few months been been like for you guys at Sports Hub? You know, at Rotowire, it's obviously changed the way we we kind of cover everything and schedule everything. I assume that you guys have been in a similar boat to some degree. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly been uh, challenging and trying and frustrating and all those things. I mean, Greg and I flew to New York City on March 12th uh, to run our live events there, and then we were all set to go to Las Vegas for the second league. This is for baseball, NFB. NFBC. And we knew as we flew out, I mean, the day before that, Rudy Gobert uh, was tested positive and the NBA was shutting its season down and all kinds of things were going on. And we knew as we were flying to New York that we were probably going to have to cancel all of our live events, which obviously was a a huge change to our, our company and our contest and everything. And by the time we landed and went out to dinner and we're talking and we're like, yeah, this is the only option for us. So the next day on March 13th, which happened to be my birthday, we announced that all of our live events in New York, Chicago, and Las Vegas were being canceled and we were going to issue refunds and it changed everything. So for, I mean, fortunately uh, on the positive side, uh, Football signups are on a record pace. A lot of people are drafting in football. We also, and I know we're going to talk about that on the podcast today, have a new postseason contest in basketball that we're unveiling. So we we shut down our basketball contest when the NBA made its decision a, a couple of weeks ago and paid out all our prize winners. And so it's been certainly a unique time and certainly for everybody, not just in our industry, but globally you know and hopefully if we're very very lucky none of us ever have to go through something like this again because it just it hasn't been any fun obviously no it most certainly has not been a a lot of watching and waiting over these past few weeks and months it something i've been thinking about is the timing of all this and i think for rotowire specifically you know we do so much business 
uh, during football season. You know, that would be the one, you know, if there's one sport that we would never want to be affected, it's football. Is there a case to be made that this whole thing kind of hit at all things considered a pretty decent time where we're still going to get a baseball season. We had 60 plus games of the NBA season, uh, you know, football, you know, all, all the coronavirus stuff kind of started to set in in the weeks after the Super Bowl. So you kind of have maximum time for football to figure out a plan. Um, I mean, would it have been quite a bit worse if all this had hit in, say, August or September, you know, right as NFL was gearing up? Yeah, well, I, I think absolutely, because then we'd be looking probably at baseball having to shut down. And, right. Uh, you know, who knows what the NBA, the NBA, what, what would have happened there. Um, they would, you know, be done. I'm assuming, assuming there were no issues in March. Um, yeah, I think it would have been bad, uh, at worse at that time. I think, you know, I, I don't want to get into how bad major league baseball messed everything up, but they did. Uh, so it hasn't been great. Can it be a situation we look at in the future and go, yeah, it could have been a lot worse. Maybe. I mean, it's been pretty bad. And so it's, it's hard for me to find a lot of silver linings in all of this. Um, but from a sports perspective, if we can have football played and it can be played, and, and I say all these things with the caveat, if done safely. So hopefully we can just stipulate that because that's mm -hmm. the most important thing. If it all can be done and we can get some semblance of a baseball season and basketball can finish up and uh, hockey and football can resume and and play yeah hopefully we can look back from a sports perspective look back at this time in the future and say it could have been a lot worse it ended up being okay and i say that from a sports perspective in terms of basketball specifically was i mean the nba made their decision to bring only 22 teams to orlando and i think that made it easier for a lot of you know, fantasy sports companies to kind of put an end to the fantasy season. It was that, did that make your decision easier? I mean, if the NBA had decided to bring all 30 teams to Orlando, would that have created, I guess, more issues for you guys in terms of whether to include those eight regular season games or whatever number it would have been um, in the season that got already started? Yeah, I think the way they did, and I, I have nothing but, uh, props for Adam Silver for how he's handled all this. He's, he's thought outside the box. He's tried to figure out a way to do this. And I think he's, he's without question, in my opinion, done a terrific job. Yeah, I think if everybody, every team had come back and there were X number of additional regular season games, uh, that could have thrown a monkey wrench into things. I think the fact that the majority of the season had been played and was done made it easier for, for us. And I think for the NBA to just say we're done and we're going to have this new format, certainly we received zero pushback from any of our customers when we announced that the season was done and we were going to pay the prize winners based on where the standings were at the time the season was uh, suspended. So our customer base responded favorably to that. I think NBA fans have responded favorably generally to what uh, Adam Silver has done here. So yeah, I think this was the right I, the right move to make. I I I have a lot of respect, and I, I commend uh, Adam Silver and the NBA for doing what they've done here. All right, so let's get into the NFBKC postseason contest, which you can of course find on the NFC website under the basketball tab. Is this a contest that you guys have ran in the past? Have you run something similar? It's it's brand new for basketball, so we're okay. really excited about it. it's it's based on our football postseason contest that is wildly popular. 
Mm-hmm. So we're we're certainly hopeful that the basketball people will uh, look at this and say, yeah, this this can be a lot of fun for the playoffs once they they kick in in the NBA and really make it a, a fun thing to play. I, I think it's I think it's a great contest. I'm biased, obviously, but again, <laughs> based on how well received the football contest is, this is very similar in terms of lineup and scoring and how we're doing it. So we, we definitely believe that this can be a very popular contest and something we can grow even more in the years to come. So this is a 400 entry contest, $100 or $150, I should say, per entry. We're looking at close to $25,000 in total prizes. Uh, so clarify for me one thing right away. Will the eight regular season games, quote unquote, regular season games, Will those be counted in this contest, or will this just begin once the playoff field is set with those 16 teams? It begins once the playoff field is set. I I want to clarify one thing. Uh, The 400 teams is our max number. We can't exceed that. The goal is 200 teams, and that's what the prizes are based on. So if anybody's doing the math and they see 400 teams, it's going to look a little weird. So understand the prizes are based on 200 teams, 400 is the max number we can get. We, we will not go beyond that number. So, But yes, uh, the contest begins once the playoff teams are set and ready to go. So from a roster perspective, uh, beginning with round one, every owner selects one player from each team. You're required to take one player from all 16 teams. Is that correct? That's correct. So yeah, you'll pick one player from every team. And obviously, you know, again, comparing this to this to the NFL where you know you have bye weeks you pick a player from a team even if that team isn't playing in the in the opening round but yes one player from six all 16 teams comprises your round one roster okay and then as the as the playoffs progress from round to round are you are you kind of trimming down your roster are you able to replace players as they get eliminated you replace players so uh, we don't reduce the, the roster, but you're able to replace players. So in round two, for example, you now get the opportunity to have two players from each team. So, you know, if you let's talk about the Bucks, for example. If you had Giannis in the first round, you can add Chris Middleton in the second round. And the beauty of this is it's multiplier scoring. So if you got Giannis in the first round, you get those points. Then in round two, you get those points times two. So that's what makes this contest really fun because the deeper you go into the playoffs, the more players you have with the multipliers, that's how you win. Again, to compare it to football, a couple of years ago, uh, the team that won it in the football contest had James White in the, with four times his scoring. So if you remember the Super Bowl game that James White had, it was mm-hmm. fantastic. That won this the the tournament for this guy because he had James White at four times. So a lot of this comes down to strategy. You know, who do you take from each team? Understanding certain players like Giannis are going to be the chalk plays. You know, that's what makes this fun. It's the multiplier and the strategy that makes it really exciting. There would be some strategy in, in taking, you know, potentially, uh, some guys from teams you might think could pull upsets then, right? Like if you think the 76ers yep. could go to the NBA Finals or if Houston could make it, then you know, taking guys like Embiid or even guys farther down the roster like a Tobias Harris or someone like that could pay off big time. Right. I mean, and that, that's where the strategy comes in. I mean, 
you're absolutely right. You do want to take a chance with some teams that you look at as underdogs and maybe some players there who aren't the obvious picks. I mean, you look at Houston, everybody's going to go James Harden. Do you go in a different direction? Or Harden or Westbrook. Um, you know, and then strategy comes in, you know, do you play the chalk or not? You know, obviously, every, I mean, the vast majority of people in the first round are going to have Giannis from the Bucks, right? That's just the obvious play. Can you afford to fade him? That's a question because it's a lot of points. He's chalk, but it's, he's chalk for a reason. So, you know, if you fade him, do you go to Middleton uh, or do you try something else? Do you try to get cute or clever? I mean, it, it, that's what makes it fun to me is uh, the strategy involved, understanding the multiplier effect. And well, is there anything in place to compensate for, you know, the expected outcomes of certain players testing positive? You know, is that, is that just something if you, let's say, you know, Malcolm Brogdon, for example, tested positive earlier today, and, and he should be fine, of course, by the time that this contest and that the, the NBA playoffs start, uh, we're talking like mid-August at that point. Um, but let's say you take, uh, you know, Ursan Ilyasova, say, with uh, one of your first round picks from the Bucks, And during that time, he ends up missing, you know, four games because he tests positive. Is, is there a replacement strategy in place or that's just part of the deal? And, you know, you, you kind of have to go in knowing that that's a risk. Uh, yeah, you have to go in knowing that's kind of a risk. It's, it's, I think we have to treat it as an injury, right? Mm-hmm. Player gets hurt, misses X number of games. That's the deal. I mean, it's obviously this is a difficult time with a lot of difficult things built into it that are unexpected and unusual, but that's kind of the process right now. We have to understand that this can happen. And, you know, we obviously hope it doesn't happen to anybody, but it can happen. And hopefully you avoid that and players avoid that primarily, obviously. Right. So by the time we get down to the NBA finals, you know, you can have as many as four players, from each team, obviously for a total of eight at that point. Um, so make sure if you're interested in, in getting in on this, I believe the deadline to apply isn't until the end of July, right? If we go right up until the start of the playoffs. So that day, the day the, or the, day the playoffs begin, that's when we'll cut off signups. We'll shut it down five minutes before the, the first game and all rosters will lock at that time. So you won't be able to add any players regardless of when they may play after that uh, five-minute deadline before the first game. Okay, makes sense. And yeah, I don't know that we have an official date on that from the NBA quite yet. And, you know, I think games are expected to resume July 30th, but, um, you know, based on the tiebreaker scenarios that could be at play for the AC in each conference, uh, we'll kind of have to be a wait and see for when that contest will officially close. Uh, but I know our own James Anderson has already submitted his entry. Um, you know, he'll be writing a strategy piece for us uh, in the coming weeks, and and we'll be doing we'll be doing some rankings, you know, for this contest specifically. Alex and I will be talking plenty about it uh, in the coming weeks as we kind of start to gear up for our own entries. And it's going to be nice to have fantasy back. You know, we haven't. Yep. You know, not I was uh, I was kind of treading water in my NFBKC league. Um, I, will, I don't think I was going to make a late charge over these final fifteen games or so, but I miss it. I, I miss working the waiver wire. I, I miss the the day to day grind of it. And even though this will be a little bit different than the the typical fantasy experience, it's going to be great to have fantasy hoops back. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I, I like golf uh, to begin with. I'm a fan. Mm-hmm. But I tell you what, the last couple of weeks watching golf, uh, it's been like the Super Bowl. I'm just in, It's just <laughs> great to have some semblance of sports back. 
Obviously, there's no fans, but you know what? Hey, it, we're all making adjustments right now, so we can we can do this. But yeah, I, I'm looking forward to the resume the resumption of uh, the NBA and seeing basketball again. I'm a I'm a huge hoops fan, so it's it's been like I said, you know, earlier. It's been a difficult, trying time. So I've always personally believed that sports can be a great unifier. It's not just about we need to be entertained, but I think we need to have something that we can all look at positively and feel good about. And I think uh, this is certainly possible and hopefully it it stays that way with uh, the NBA coming back and baseball and, you know, the NFL later on in in the summer and fall. Absolutely. Anything else you want to pub while you're here, Tom? Well, I want to let people know to go to playnfbkc.com to sign up. You can take multiple entries in the contest. So sign up for that $150 entry fee. Get in. Uh, it's going to be a great contest. If you like football, we got drafts going on every single day at playnffc.com. Uh, so we've got a lot going on. It's a busy time. Hopefully we're all enjoying sports uh, in the weeks and uh, months to come. That's, that's my primary uh, goal right now. All right. Excellent. Like I said, Tom, we look forward to breaking down, <clears throat> excuse me, breaking down that basketball contest in even more detail over these next few weeks. And appreciate you taking the time to hop on and join us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys.